Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The scripture reading today comes from the book of John, the third chapter, verses 14 through 21. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have life eternal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have life eternal. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe in him are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all those who do evil hate the light and don't want to come into the light so their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come into the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of the Lord. From the Old Testament, hear these words. From Mount Or, the Israelites set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom, but the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. This story from Numbers feels alien to our 21st century life. Surely, surely God does not send poisonous snakes to punish human beings. And certainly just looking at a bronze snake on a pole does not heal 
a snake bite. Where's the antivenom? Where are the Cabela's snake-proof boots? And where's the God with whom we feel safe and comfortable? This odd passage in Numbers owes its place in our imagination to the gospel reading from John that Jean read. Without John's cryptic reference to the serpent in the wilderness, a simile for the Son of Man, we might never explore one of the more puzzling stories in the Old Testament. But consider this story about snakes and idols we must, for it shapes our understanding of how the lifting up of the Son of Man, the resurrection, is like Moses lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness. And the ongoing spectacle that is God's love for creation and for people, I'm constantly reminded of how distorted my sight is. Idolatry seems like an easy thing to avoid. No wooden statues on the mantle, no stone image of Buddha in the garden, no tattoos of Jesus on the arms, no gold lockets with Zeus pictured within. But it's never that easy, is it? Idolatry isn't solely a matter of the artifacts that adorn our lives and fill our bodies. More often, idolatries are the ways that our lives coalesce subtly around the invisible unholy. Idolatry becomes a comfort, and we take the comfort for granted. After years of this, the deaths of dark bodies in the town next door the wailing of Syrian faces covered by the rubble and dust of another missile attack, and the slaughter of children in their classrooms. These realities not only seem inconsequential, but almost necessary. We hurry to believe the justification of death even before we mourn the dead. Roaming through the wilderness, the Hebrews did not experience God as safe. In the showdown with Pharaoh, God sent ten vicious plagues to show the superiority of the God of Israel to Egypt's gods. On the way out of Egypt, God appears as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and the Egyptians were terrified. God thunders in fire and smoke up on the mountain, petrifying the Israelites. This is not the image of a God that invites us to snuggle up into the everlasting arms, safe and secure from all alarms, as the old hymn goes. The story is the final of five murmuring stories in numbers. It's been a long, dusty trek in the wilderness, and the people are tired and frustrated. Over and over, the people rebel, they complain, they whine against their leaders out in the wilderness. God moves to punish the people for their rabble-rousing. Moses steps in to intervene. The, compete, the people complain against God as well as Moses, which is probably why this story is so important. This is the last mention of whining. But complaining about Moses and Aaron is one thing, but denigrating God is another. The complaint in Numbers is absurd as well as mutinous. They have no food and water, yet they say, we detest this miserable food. What food? Are they hallucinating? The manna is there. The complaint is vaguely reminiscent of a line from Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huck Finn when 
Hop tries to talk about a local farmer preacher, and he says that the man never changed anything by his preaching, and it was worth it as well. They hope that they are seeing things. When the poisonous snakes come crawling toward them out of the rocks, heading straight for their legs, but these snakes are real. When they bite, the people die, which jolts the living to their senses. They repent of their sins and they call on Moses to take away the serpents. Moses is best here in his role as an intermediary, facilitating communication between God and God's people. Here does not here God does not give the people what they ask for. They want God to take away the serpents, but the serpents do not go away, nor do they stop biting. Instead, God instructs Moses on how to heal the people who are bitten. They are still bitten, but they live. Deliverance does not come in the way that we expect it. If it doesn't kill us, perhaps it will make us stronger. The divine answer to their prayer is what makes this story so strange. God tells Moses to make a fiery serpent from bronze and set it atop a pole. Is this not an idol and an Egyptian one at that? Didn't Pharaoh wear a headdress with the image of a spitting cobra on it? Everyone who looks looks upon the serpent will live, God says. Is this not some kind of magic? Since when does a statue give life? How strange a tale this is, but the plan works. The people live and they continue on their journey. This is a kind of sympathetic magic, looking upon the image of a snake entwined on a pole. And it works so well that the people go on to turn the snake sculpture into one of their ancestral treasures. And eventually it makes it into a special place in the temple in Jerusalem. And it has a name and a cult following. It may take us well out of our 20th century comfort zones to imagine God is dangerous and an unpredictable presence in our lives. Yet if we claim we have God all figured out, then we have ignored the mystery and divine freedom with which God has shown here and in much of Scripture. A domesticated, unmoving God does not pull a people up out of slavery, through the wilderness and into the promised land. No, we need a God who is in the oft-repeated words of teacher Don Jewell, a God who is on the loose, a God who can snap us out of the stupor of this world, this world of cultural chaos. For we desperately need release from one or more of the culture wars that have engulfed us. And we need a God powerful enough to do so. Idolatry is not just an Old Testament issue. It's not a Jewish matter. It's a human issue. Is it that the bronze image of a snake atop a wooden pole can do something bad to us? Or is it that we do something awful to ourselves when we place adoration and attention that should go to God in another place? When it comes to idolatry, the danger is not in an item or an event or an experience. The danger is in us. Idols make us prone to lose sight of everything and anything that is important. Examples abound each and every day. Here's one. 
the Florida House of Representatives has its way, the public schools in the Sunshine State will soon be required to post the words, in God we trust, in places where all can see. That's the state's motto. The House voted on the legislation this Wednesday, 97 to 10, with all the members standing and applauding the results. After finding time to debate and approve a bill declaring pornography a public health risk. Yet the House refused, 71 to 37, to even consider a bill this week to ban assault weapons, which had been supported by the student survivors of the February 14th shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, where we know a gunman killed 17 people. The students had gone to the state capitol to push for gun control and were in the gallery when the gun legislation was raised. Some were dismayed at the results. It was John Calvin who said truthfully that our hearts are an idol factory. And they're ceaselessly and endlessly making objects of devotion that remove our attention from what truly needs to be attended to. People constantly seek things that they can worship or distract their attention, even though the Creator is before us and in plain view in Jesus the Christ. Idolatry makes love impossible. Idolatry makes compassion unbearable and faith traitorous. It empties hope of any power to create a new and exciting future. Perhaps this is why it's the first of the great commandments that God gives to Israel and to us. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. If we break any of the commandments, the prime time ones, we have already broken the first. We've already elevated ourselves and our apparent desires and our confusion above all else. Images of idolatry, especially pictures of the people of Israel dancing around a golden calf, had little effect on me as a teenager coming to faith, except maybe comic relief. I could sense, though, that idolatry was there, embedded in our life and our culture, and that beyond worshiping a stone image of God, I could see how that commandment lay in tension against the great commandment that Jesus gives us in the gospel, which is to love God with our whole heart and mind and body and soul, and to love our neighbors, all of them, as ourselves. All of these loves are, of course, interrelated. Self-love is bankrupt if it doesn't include a love of our neighbors. As Kathleen Norris has noted, a measure of balance in these objects of our devotion is a true safeguard against idolatry, which can give any of these too much weight. If we love ourselves too much, we can also focus our love of others to excess. We can smother our partners or we can helicopter parent our children. Seeing this, Mary Oliver, the great poet, just says simply, love yourself, then forget it, and then go and love the whole world. Brene Brown observes this, that antidote to worship of idols is a wholehearted living that is about engaging our lives from the place of worthiness that comes from God. 
It means cultivating the courage and compassion and connection to wake up in the morning and to think, no matter what gets done and no matter what gets left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that truth doesn't change the truth that I am also brave and worthy of love and belonging. Lent, this great season, reminds us that beginning with making idols, our sins are no trite matter. They cannot be scrubbed away. You can think of this strange story in Numbers 21 as our common struggle with sin. Even as the Israelites could pivot so quickly from grumbling to victory to healing, so our lives are a series of dyings and risings with Jesus the Christ. The whole thing is truly an amazing process. And who knows exactly why God just doesn't snap God's fingers to make each one of us perfect. It all begins when we are so singularly and instantly saved by grace alone. For all of our human history, we've wanted to see our Creator, to understand in our minds and hearts. We've settled too much, too easily on one or another idol. In Jesus, we say that, see that the Creator is that God. We've sought a real and close encounter with the one who will make things good and true and right. In Jesus, we encounter that one, that judge, that healer, that redeemer. John's story rests on this conclusion, that the resurrection shows God's unique affirmation that the only one who escaped death must be the one to judge and heal and save both the living and the dead. And that God was the same one who lifted up this Jesus from death and destruction to life. Following the example of Moses, lifting up that staff in the wilderness, Jesus shows us God, God's own self given to us, not as an image, but as God's own self, the incarnate Son. Friends, God is responsive to the needs of all and complaining people. The protests are answered. The cries are heard quite undeservedly. There is a gift of healing where pain is experienced in the sharpest, in the very presence of the enemy. Deliverance comes not in being removed, but in the very troubles themselves. This movement from death to life occurs within the very experience of God-forsakenness. The death-dealing forces of chaos are nailed to the pole. But then the pole of life is carried on to Jerusalem and set upon a hill outside the city in another God-forsaken place, high on a hill overlooking that place. God's own self is taken to the pole and once and for all, all those who know that they are dying in the wilderness can be healed and there can be hope and life. Thanks be to God who has loved us completely and fully. Amen and amen. Our God, we pray that the gifts we offer in these moments might be used to reach out to those in all corners of the world who need hope, who hunger for food and justice, who yearn for peace, and who long for your presence in their lives. Bless and use it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
And let us continue on in a spirit of prayer. Let us pray. Holy and merciful God, in these Lenten days, as we journey on to your cross, as we come closer to the fullness of who you are, and as we see your willingness to suffer for our sakes, open us to receive you. We who gather bring a great wideness to our faith. Some of us are eager to be with you in this wilderness, to engage you there in the depths of agony on our behalf. For others, we are beyond busy, and it is grace if our faith deepens in a season we are just trying to survive. Others among us struggle with the harshness of Lent, the penetrating prayers that keep focusing on our brokenness. Wherever we are, this hallowed time belongs to you. Allow us to be attentive to it, to be aware of you, to be alive in a faith where your life is a model for our life where your love becomes the standard for our love. The messiness of the world is wrenching, and it must be so for you, O oh God, to see your people at war, in poverty, addicted, humanity mangled, to watch us and walk with us in this world, your sons and daughters who could be richly blessed with different opinions, instead torn apart over political injustice issues a world endowed with people of many creeds and colors unable to listen and learn of one another, nations at war with one another over resources we all ought to share, people, your children engaged in acts of terror against others, even at concerts, in schools, and in churches. We need your help in Israel and Palestine, in Syria, in Arkansas and Louisiana, in Tallahassee and Detroit. We need your guidance. We need your hand of healing upon an earth ever warming and changing. We need your voice to be heard through the youth of our country who have courage and passion for change, through pastors and politicians who are unafraid to speak truth to power, through every person moving beyond uttered prayers to enacted ones, faith in action empowered by your Holy Spirit. Each of us need your strength for each day ahead for us whatever battles large or small we face, but also holding tenderly the joys, big and little, which always do come. Open our eyes to see them, O oh God. We come bearing the burdens in body, mind, or circumstance of those we love. We pray for those who are grieving, and we grieve for those who are dying. Bring light to those in the darkness of depression, the grip of addiction, the loss of memory. Work in powerful ways for those who deal with uncertainty and anxiety and move them beyond their woundedness and beyond their hardship. We hold close our mission team in Nicaragua this very day and all those saints around the world who are engaged in building community, sharing wisdom and wealth to improve lives and witness to your love in human form. Teach us all that every corner of the world matters to you. So we must not tire in responding, knowing that no response is too small if done in sacrificial love. Beyond our outward efforts in Lent, you compel us to look inward. Transform us during this uncertain season, both in faith and in life. In the name and power of one who suffered, who died, and who lives, and who gave us these words to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.